Hallelujah. Church, you can be seated. By the way, that's Billy, Mark, Sterling, Jonathan, David, and across the front was Maggie, John Kirkpatrick, because we have like nine Johns here. John Kirkpatrick and David, and how wonderful is that? That's, we are a very blessed church, and I only did that because they would have never wanted me to do what I just did. Do you understand what I'm saying? Like, um, there's a, a humility and just a desire to praise um, God with their talents and gifts, which our church has been blessed with in abundance. So praise God for that. As you have guessed, I am not Pastor John. I don't know what gave it away. The hair, maybe. I felt good. I felt good. <laughs> Pastor John is on the road this morning um, taking one of his daughters back to college over on the left coast. And um, they're, you know, visiting some family along the way, that type of thing. So we hope they just have a safe and sweet, wonderful time together. If you want to be finding your place in your Bible this morning, we're going to be in Romans 5, verses 12 to 21. Uh, Peter, in one of his letters, he references some of Paul's writings as difficult to understand. That's in 2 Peter, around 3.16. Some of Paul's writings is difficult to understand, and I think today is clearly one of those passages. In fact, John MacArthur says that Romans 5.12-21 might be the most difficult and challenging passage in the book of Romans. So with that, I would like to thank Pastor John for assigning me this passage and then promptly leaving town. So. But it is, a, it is a humbling passage to read, to study, to teach, to absorb, to apply. Um, stretches our minds, grows us in humility. And historically, worship leaders are not exactly known for their humility. You don't, you don't have to agree quite so vehemently. But you, yes, true, you will never hear someone say, this guy is so humble, you would think he's a worship pastor. You, you, don't, you don't hear that. So we praise God for passages like the one today. And I, I hope, as my prep was this week, that today is a challenging and edifying and humbling time for you as well. Before we do anything else, let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. God, as we approach your perfect and inerrant word this morning, we humble ourselves. God, soften our hardened hearts and clear our cluttered minds. Impress upon us that we are not editors picking and choosing only what we like or prefer, but that we are just obedient proclaimers, expositing your words and your commands. May our posture be one of humility. May your word speak clearly and powerfully through an imperfect servant this morning. God, give us understanding in Christ's name. Amen. So I'm going to start by reading this entire passage. It's very wordy. And then we're going to kind of break it down. We're going to go verse by verse after that. I was raised by a mother and father that were both school teachers. So in my house, to read anything had to be read three times. Once to introduce yourself to it, a second time to understand it, a third time to absorb. So we're going to kind of apply that principle today. So if you want to join me there, Romans 5, verses 12 to 21. 
The word of God reads, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world, the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more will have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because one man's trespass death reigned, through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So as we, we learned last week when Pastor John unpacked Romans 5, the beginning and the, the doctrine of justification, therefore we are because we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That's what Paul is saying. And then he hits us with this word right here in verse 12, therefore. And when Paul says therefore, it's time. It's time to get deeper. Paul is expertly conveying that one man's deed has effect on many, the sin of Adam, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Paul is trying to explain that we are either in the first Adam who sinned or the last Adam, Jesus Christ, who was righteous and perfect. So if you're a Christ follower this morning, you have moved from the family of Adam to the family of Christ. You have moved, you have been moved from death to life by the grace of God. Or as Paul taught in 1 Corinthians 15, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So our first four verses deal with the heartbreak and chaos and death brought into this world by the sin of Adam. And it's certainly not Difficult to observe sin in our world. You can all think of examples. I was thinking mainly that the word of God itself brings people to anger now in society. Our sinful generation has so, is so twisted that it considers the truths of Scripture to be what oppresses. Our society calls good evil and evil good. If you don't believe it, Read some of the library books that our government is forcing on children through the public school system. 
we have backslidden so far as a people. Our society now considers it loving to castrate children, affirming, to halt their natural growth and development through drugs. In various communities in our country, acts of violence and hatred are now condoned and encouraged as long as those acts are committed against someone who has the wrong politics or the wrong belief system. Sin is quite easy to observe. Verse 12, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. One man, Adam, the head of humanity, he was humanity. Through him, sin came in. Through that, death entered our world. I think we have a difficult time understanding our sinful nature these days. I think we all think we're good people or people can be good people. We don't understand our sin, our depravity, our deserving of hell. And because of that, we forget. We accept death as a part of life when human beings were not originally created to die. At that moment of sin, Adam began to die. And we now know it is just a part of life that those we love and cherish will die or have died. One day, so will we. God is life, light. God makes all things new. God is eternal. And death is just the, the opposite of that. Death is final. It's ugly. It is foul. It's not merely an expected part of life. Death is a curse earned by our sinful flesh. And we have, we've become so accustomed to death through just our lives, our television shows. And as I was discussing with, with my brother Nathan just a while ago, we don't have to be in the presence of it very often with hospitals and medicine and things like that. We don't care for our relatives when they die. That's the funeral home's job. So we're not really exposed to all that death is. We've kind of watered down its impact in our life. So for a perspective on the situation of death, I'd like to do this. In 1348, the Black Plague, the Black Death, swept through Europe, wiping out much of the population. And the British Library's um, Chronicle of the Black Death speaks of the foulness of death as described by those who were there, those who observed everything. And this has, of course, been translated into modern English, but I wanted to read that for us here. A great mortality destroyed more than a third of the men, women, and children. As a result, there was such a shortage of servants, craftsmen, and workmen, and of agricultural workers and laborers that a great many lords and people, although well endowed with goods and possessions, were yet without service and attendance. Alas, this mortality devoured such a multitude of both sexes that no one could be found to carry the bodies of the dead to burial. But men and women carried the bodies of their little ones to church on their shoulders and threw them into mass graves from which arose such a stink that it was barely possible for anyone to go past a churchyard. Death is not just a normal part of life. Death is a curse. Everyone that is living in this room right now, which is everybody here, um, will die one day. 
Before I finish this message this morning, 5,400 people will die in our world. But in addition to bodily death, the scriptures speak of spiritual death. One that is spiritually dead is headed to hell. One that is in Adam, dead in his sins and trespasses. But the good news is that if you are a believer, you are spiritually alive. And if you are a believer, you will one day be physically alive eternally. So the first point, we're going to have three of these this morning. The first point we can extract from this passage, sin and its wage, death, entered the world through one man. Humanity is guilty of sin in Adam. So what does that mean? Does Paul mean because we are like Adam, that we are going to sin, and when we sin, we become like Adam. I, I think I believed that at one point in my life. But I, the more I've read this passage, that's not at all what he is saying. What Paul is saying is that Adam was our head. Adam was our representative. And when he sinned, we sinned in Adam. God often deals with his people in this very way. Adam, Abraham, Moses, they were representatives of God's people, very similar to the way an attorney might represent a client. And then from that representation, there are consequences or benefits from that relationship. We see that representative nature even in the referenced entrance of sin into our world. So to go a bit deeper into what Paul is saying, let's have the scriptures remind us of how sin entered the world. I'm going to flip to Genesis 3. That's all the way over to the left-hand side. I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 6. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. God didn't say that, by the way. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And we see in reading this account of how sin entered the world. Who was tempted first? Eve. Who was first deceived? Eve was. Who misquoted God? Eve did. Who first ate the forbidden fruit? Eve. Who gave the fruit to Adam? Eve did. But scripture tells us sin came into the world through one man. Adam was the head of a family. He was the head of a marriage. He was the head of humanity. And in God's design, Adam and Eve were one flesh. Sin entered the world through that action. The 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith summarizes, our first parents 
by this sin fell from their original righteousness and communion with God, and we in them, whereby death came upon all, all becoming dead in sin and wholly defiled in all the faculties and parts of soul and body. Again, we see this idea of physical and spiritual death, soul and body. But again, this is consistent with how God deals with his people, the representative, the head, the the, the one that he deals with for a larger group. We see Abraham make a tithe to Melchizedek. And scripture tells us in the book of Hebrews, this is as though the tribe of Levi itself tithed to Melchizedek. In the book of Joshua, we read of Achan, and he goes in, he takes a, a Babylonian garment and a wedge of gold that's not his, disobeying God. And what does God say to Joshua? He doesn't say Achan has sinned. He says Israel has sinned. Joshua chapter 7, Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. So in preparation for this message, I learned something about culture around the world and the ability to accept and apply this idea of headship, this concept. And I found that it receives its largest objection in America. Um, America has historically prized individualism. Uh, Adam doesn't speak for me. I'm my own man. And this concept is thus a bit more challenging Um, A theologian and a man that was kind of known as a pastor to pastors, um, John Stott, pointed out of this passage that we cannot point the finger at Adam in self-righteous innocence, for we share in his guilt. And it's because we sinned in Adam that we die today. Through sin, death entered the world, and we bear guilt Verse 13, for if sin was indeed in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. So between Adam and Moses, God had not given out his law in a a formal way, if you will. However, it's important to remember that Paul, just in Romans 2, had told us that there is real guilt for people that do not have the revealed law. So I do not think Paul is contradicting himself in his own letter. So he's not saying that people who have lived and died before the Mosaic law are free of guilt because Romans 2 tells us that they did have the law at least in a rudimentary form. I think Paul is saying when he says sin is not counted where there is no law, I think he's saying that guilt and responsibility increase dramatically with knowledge and awareness. Verse 14, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. In Adam there is death, in Christ there is life. Only through Christ, there's no other way According to God's plan, because of the sin 
Because the sin of the first Adam renders us sinful, only the righteousness of the true, the final Adam, can rescue us. Death is one of humanity's greatest fears. In Job 18, death is referred to as the king of terrors. We are all afraid of death. We're afraid of physical death. Oddly enough, the world is not very afraid of spiritual death, and that's far worse. Then the word of God tells us that Adam was a type of one who is to come. This is simply not a story about a man named Adam and his failing. Adam was the first foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. As we just sang a moment ago, he was the one that when tempted never sinned. Paul is not telling us a story of Adam and the story of Jesus Christ. To read the scripture is to look at or to Christ, the one who would crush the head of the serpent, the one for whom Adam was a type and shadow of the one that was to come. Scripture is not a series of individual unrelated narratives. Scripture from Genesis to Revelation is one narrative, God's redemptive plan through Jesus Christ. To help us comprehend this grand and beautiful plan, God gives us type and shadow. Just a couple of the, you remember being in vacation Bible school and learning Bible stories? Moses at the Red Sea, God was not, Moses at the Red Sea was not the savior. He was not the deliverer the people were expecting. Nevertheless, his people were facing a death that seemed certain. Pharaoh's army was closing in, and this enemy was not surmountable by any means of man. But the miraculous occurred. God saved his people from the threat of the impending death. That threat was destroyed. And God's people, a people that had done absolutely nothing to merit God's choosing of them, were saved. David was not the savior or the deliverer the people were expecting. Nevertheless, his people were facing a death that seemed certain. A giant named Goliath and his army threatened the people. And this enemy was not surmountable by any means of man. But the miraculous occurred and God saved his people. The threat of impending death was destroyed. And God's people, a people that had done nothing to merit God's choosing of them, were saved. And these men who, like Adam, they were flawed by sin. But they were a foreshadowing of the perfect Savior who was to come. In Adam, sin is the ultimate undefeatable foe. We have no chance to defeat sin on our own. Um, anyone who claims such is, is wrong. They are mistaken. There's only one Savior that can defeat sin. It's, it's not you. We see in Genesis, we see this referenced in Romans, that scripture is not merely about a collection of men who were godly. Scripture is about one man who was God. Verse 15 and 16. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more 
have the grace of God. And the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Paul is measuring the trespass of Adam against the free gift of salvation through the grace of Jesus, through his substitutionary death on the cross. Paul compares the impact of Adam's deeds to the impact of Jesus's deeds. Paul is comparing, he's proclaiming the impact of Christ is far greater than the impact of sin. The abundance of life in Christ is far greater than the absence of life in sin. Life in Christ is far greater in scope than death in sin. And again, it's a free gift. Whereas one trespass condemns, the grace of God forgives numerous sins. Paul then mentions this gift of justification. That's your your justification, that is your legal standing before God. At the moment of saving, at saving faith, the moment of saving faith, the believer is justified and in right standing before God, no longer guilty, no longer condemned through Christ's imputed righteousness. And that's a crucial truth. That actually separates many false faiths from Christianity. Paul is showing that for the believer, justification extinguishes condemnation. We have done everything to earn our condemnation, and we have been gifted salvation, justification. Our second point, Jesus Christ is the only escape from the penalty of inherited sin. The concept of inherited sin just hits my pride the wrong way. Um, This idea that one man's action, I wasn't even there, right? Why? One sin brought death because God is mean? Because God overreacted? Of course not. Those are human expressions. Those are human emotions, fleshly emotions. When I say that, I think of the famous R.C. Sproul quote. You've probably seen it on a coffee cup or on a T-shirt somewhere. He was asked that same question. In the garden, why was God so severe to Adam and Eve for one little sin? And R.C. Sproul famously exclaimed, what's wrong with you people? (laughs) He said, God is perfect. God is just. God is righteous. And this creature from the dirt defied the almighty creator. Sin brought death because God is holy, and one sin is the opposite of God. One trespass, and man's holiness was lost. And then many trespasses compounded over generations. And what was God's response? His response was the one act of righteousness in Christ and the cross, restoring the broken relationship between God and man. In Christ, we are justified, we are saved, praise God. Verse 17, 
For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. I would say that verse 17 is basically a recapitulation of the entire passage. And as I read through this passage over and over the last week, trying to absorb it, I I was struck with one thing. It's kind of unrelated to what we're talking about, but why doesn't this bring us to great joy? Why aren't Christians the most joyful people on this earth? We've seen in Romans that we enter into these wonderful things via this God-gifted faith. I think sometimes we as believers need to be reminded what God has done for us. Instead, we waste time and we grow in arrogance, wondering why God Almighty doesn't explain himself to me. And we have to ask ourselves, where is our joy? Why? Because you didn't get whatever it was you were asking God for? If God never performed another gracious act for us, the cross alone should give the believer perpetual peace and joy. Verses 18 and 19. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. I think sometimes we look at God's salvific plan as like a a divine buffet table. And we just pick off of it what we like and we reject what we don't. I'm guilty. I I am guilty in Adam because of Adam's sin. No, I, I I don't want that. But Jesus Christ stood in my place and bore my penalty. Yeah, I'll take that. We love to look at the condemnation in Adam and say, I wasn't there. You weren't on the cross either. Charles Spurgeon says, as we suffer through the sin of Adam, so we are saved through the righteousness of Christ. Our fall was caused by another, and so is our rising again. Verses 20 and 21. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This idea that the law increases trespasses. So I studied on that and I found there's basically two perspectives. And I think they can both be true at the same time. The first of the two perspectives of the law increasing trespass is the simple fact that we love to break laws. I think law increases our rebellion. What made the fruit enticing? One thing that made it enticing is that it was forbidden. If you wish to keep people off your front lawn, the worst thing you can do is put up a sign that says, keep off the grass. I'll have a pickup game in your front yard. During, During covid Many people didn't mind wearing a mask until 
They were told they had to. I think laws awaken our rebellion. And the second perspective of how the law increases trespass, and if I had to pick one of the two and go with it, this would be the one I'd come down on, is that the law illuminates sin. I don't know if you've ever watched a high-speed chase on television. I'm sure you have. I'm addicted to them. I could do it all day. But if you, if you had no knowledge of the law and you're watching a high-speed chase on television, you would know, well, that person probably did something wrong and that person's probably trying to catch them. But if you have knowledge of the law, you know that that person is evading arrest. They're driving recklessly. They're endangering human life. They're speeding. They're failing to signal. See, that knowledge of the law increases the knowledge of the trespass. And the same is true for God's law and the believer. Interestingly enough, the closer you grow to Christ, you become increasingly aware of your sin. And this is the grace of God and sanctification. Whereas some have maintained over the years that grace is some sort of ticket to licentiousness, when in fact the opposite is true. Grace does not lead to lawlessness, it leads to righteousness. God writes his law on our heart and sets about transforming us sanctifying slowly, chipping away the pieces that do not look like Jesus. And there's a lot of those. And this may also give us an answer to another long-asked question when it comes to knowledge of the law and culpability um, for sin. I added this late last night, sitting on my, on my favorite chair. Um, that question, what happens to babies that die. I'm talking of miscarriages or abortions or a baby that tragically passes away as a toddler, something like that. And I think we can also include those with certain mental challenges or disabilities as well in this. If you're looking for a, a verse that clearly answers that question, you will not find one. So all we can do is apply what we know about God and his character and what we read in his word and I believe that one, with no comprehension of the law, no comprehension of right or wrong, that one goes to be with Jesus. I'm sure of it. I know others and some brothers of mine in Christ have a different take on that, but I just don't see it. I see nothing in the character of God, nothing in his word that says he holds the innocent accountable for that which they're unaware Our third point this morning, the perfection of Jesus overrides the corruption of Adam. Sinners either received, earned condemnation in Adam, or they are gifted righteousness in Jesus Christ in accordance with God's will. Again, one man's sin curse blotted out by one man's righteousness. Praise God for that. So I get asked the question often, and I mean really often. I've asked the question many times myself, so maybe that's the reason I get asked the same question. And it's this, why does God do it this way? Why does God set these systems in place? Why does God work the way he does? 
And what are what you, what I or what you really mean when you get hung up on that question is why doesn't God do things the way I would like him to? Is God being unfair? Is God being mean? Is God being hateful? <laughs> no. Most of us have perspective. If you're in this room right now, I'm guessing we're most of us are between 30 and 80 years of age. So we have 30 to 80 years of perspective collectively. God has always existed since before time even began. So how are we to take our experience, which is a relative nanosecond, and demand that God adjust his redemptive plan to accommodate our feeble understanding? And as I I work through this in my mind, and I've, I've thought about it for years, honestly, a book comes to my mind, and it's... It's not a book. It's not a faith-based book. It's not written by a theologian. And this analogy I'm about to give is not going to be perfect because any analogy between a human being and God is, of course, going to break down. But the book that comes to mind is a biography about Paul Bear Bryant. Welcome back. Paul Bear Bryant is considered by many one of the greatest football coaches that ever lived. He brought six national championships to a little podunk school in Tuscaloosa. He, sorry, I had to do it. He was beloved by football fans and players around the country. And when he died in 1983, the New York Post headline read, Crimson Tears. A quarter of a million mourners turned out for his funeral And people lined the road from Tuscaloosa to Birmingham, 55 miles long, both sides of the road to pay their respects as the three-mile-long funeral procession crept by. President Ronald Reagan sent flowers. Players like Joe Namath, Kenny Stabler, Leroy Jordan, Ozzie Newsom were in attendance at the funeral. Coach Bryant was beloved and respected and cherished He had the gifting to turn boys into men. And no one doubts that looking at the grand picture. They don't doubt the positive impact he had on people's lives, the great victories he had, the long-lasting accomplishments and benefits through his methods that led to victory. But now consider this for just a second. What if one were to form their opinion of Bear Bryant solely by watching him coach one single football practice? Would they celebrate the loving father figure, sweet, edifying leader of a coach? Or would they shriek in disgust at how harsh he could be? He treats his players harshly. He disciplines his players severely. He pushes them to their very limit. He must be mean. He must must be unfair. This, This looks hateful. But see, we need the right perspective. We need the big picture. If we're going to decide someone or someone is hateful or mean or unfair, we need the proper context. we would be infinitely more incorrect and out of bounds to gaze upon God's providence and assume we had any inkling 
of the necessary perspective to accuse God of being unfair or unloving strictly because we don't understand in the tiny amount of time we've been here. God has eternally existed. He has no beginning and no end. Within God's creation, our fleshly lives are but a sniffle. Yet we presume to be the judge of what is loving and what is not. That is comically delusional for our flesh to be the judge of what is loving and what is not. Look at the world our flesh has created. As we spoke earlier, we do not know what love is. We've perverted it to, the, to a point that it's almost unrecognizable. We have no perspective. We do not even have the ability to see how God's plan will ultimately lead to God's glory. And that's his desire, by the way. His desire is his glory. God desires, above all things, to see himself glorified, not to grant our wishes by getting us to rub the lamp the right way. But God, in his abundant grace, has wired the believer to find great joy and peace in glorifying God. We praise God for that. And I think Habakkuk is a beautiful example of this struggle and this resolution. Habakkuk found himself in a season where he was asking God why. He was demanding answers. Why doesn't God bring revival to Israel? Why doesn't God come and purify his people? Why doesn't God come bless his people? Habakkuk wanted answers. And what does God do? God says, okay, I am going to destroy them. So first, Habakkuk's accusing God of not doing anything, and then he's wondering why God could be doing evil. And God's not done. Thirdly, God says, I'm going to use the Chaldeans to be your judge, a far worse people. Habakkuk is trying to figure it out. He's getting nowhere. He's just finding frustration. He's finding misery. And he never gets the perfect answer from God that he and his frustration in his flesh had demanded. Instead, he submits in humility. And he says, you are God. You cannot even look upon evil. You do not tolerate sin. And he humbly resolves. This is one of my favorite passages. Habakkuk 3, verses 18 and 19. Yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. God is loving and God is just. God is also beyond our comprehension in many ways. And that's a good thing, by the way. A God that we could fully comprehend and understand isn't very impressive. Back to Paul's main point. Sin and death entered the world through Adam. Justification and redemption, life and restoration through Jesus Christ. So as you sit here this morning, you are either in Adam, you are in Christ. You're in one or the other. Christ is the only path to heaven. Earlier this week, one of our elders, um, Brother Jerry, sent, sent us a video 
by Alistair Begg, and he's talking about this question of dying and being asked, you know, upon what grounds do you presume to enter heaven? And he said, with that accent of his, he says, because the man on the middle cross said I can come. Either you are dead in sin or you are made alive in Christ. Christ entered this world. He was born of a virgin. He did not have a human biological father. I think we learn why. Today, he would have been born under the fleshly curse of sin. Yet he's still 100% man, 100% God. His humanity makes him the believer's representative. His divinity results in his holiness and sinlessness. And sin of which we are all culprits led to his betrayal, his arrest, his trial, his scourging, his execution. Jesus would stand before God and he would face God's wrath for the sin of all who would believe. He bore God's wrath to its completion. In doing so, he restored the relationship between God and humanity. A relationship that was fractured by the sin of Adam. And three days after his fleshly death, he rose from the grave, conquering sin's earned curse. When God judges the Christian, he looks upon the perfect righteousness of Jesus imputed to the believer. A beloved Puritan author once wrote of this. A Christian knows that death shall be the funeral of all his sins, his sorrows, his afflictions, his temptations, his vexations, his oppressions, his persecutions. He knows that death shall be the resurrection of all his hopes, his joys, his delights, his comforts, his contentments. That is God's free gift. You do not earn it by cleaning up your act, quitting your, your bad habits. You don't win it by having the right Bible verse on your wall or tattooed on your arm or on the bumper sticker on your car. You don't gain it by wearing a, a Jesus bracelet or a purity ring. You don't earn it with perfect church attendance. God says, repent and believe. And if you're here today and you're feeling called to repentance or you have questions about what belief even is, or, or maybe you just want to know more about Jesus. I want to tell you, all of these longings and questions, those are a gift of God in themselves through the Holy Spirit. And I'd certainly love to talk to you about it. But know this, if you're here at Capshaw this morning, you are surrounded by believers, maturing believers, and they would love to talk to you. They would love to teach you about the gospel. They'd love to make a new friend. So do not suffer in solitude this morning. Let's pray together.